Amen. It is well with our souls because of Jesus. Oh, thank you, Luke. Thank you, uh, music team. And uh, I want to say thank you to uh, the unsung heroes of uh, CBC. They're all sitting in that back table. Uh, They are our sound plus tech plus everything else that happens at this church that is good team. Uh, So right now we have Alec, we have Amber, we have Marty. Sam is not back there, but you were doing sound today, right? You were like like doing it on an iPad. Uh, Without them, uh, nothing could be heard, nothing would sound good. Uh, It would just all sound muffled and weird. And you have to understand that they, they deal with a very strange room, as many of you have noticed. I mean, this is a, this is a weird place, right? First of all, there's zones for temperature. You guys have found this out, right? The, the soffits that are right here that are spitting out the AC, and there's one back there. That's a, a freezing zone. So if you don't like to be cold, don't sit under these little canister lights there. Uh, and then the middle, that big box that you guys are in, that thing is so hot. It always gets super hot there. You got the sun shining through. So there's zones for temperature. Then there's also zones for noise, right? If you sit in the back, you can barely hear anything. And then if you sit where I was sitting, which I love sitting here because it just is a wall of noise uh, just rushing over your eardrums. It's amazing. So they, they do this every single Sunday, and they do it with such precision and excellence. Um, I, I, just, I have such a huge appreciation for what they do. It's incredible. One of the things that they do, they have so many different gadgets and gizmos back there. One of the gadgets that they have, I don't know if it's out there. Marty, is your little decibel reader out there? No. Uh, when we have a full band, we have a decibel reader. You guys know what a decibel reader is? Uh, I'll give you a hint. It's in the name. It reads the decibels, right? It's the meter that tells you how loud things are. And they try to keep it at a level that's scientifically okay for ears and for hearing so we don't make anybody go deaf. I was thinking about the, the music and this decibel reader, and I was thinking last week, what would a decibel reader in heaven do? What would a decibel reader in heaven look like? The one that Marty has, you set it to a specific zone, and then it kind of has a little gauge, a little needle that kind of fits inside of that zone to tell you how loud or how soft things are. I think a decibel reader in heaven would just shatter, right? I think that's one of the reasons why we have to have glorified bodies. There's a lot of reasons why we have to have glorified bodies in heaven. But one of the reasons why is because we have to have glorified eardrums that won't break with the deafening sound of the praise of the Lamb. And yet, as we come to Revelation chapter 8, we see something that we have not seen thus far in our study. And that is absolute silence. Now the decibel reader goes from blowing up to reading absolutely no noise whatsoever. Why? Why the silence? What does the silence mean for us today? I'm going to read Revelation chapter 8 in its entirety and then we'll Ask God's blessing on our time in his word and and dive in. Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And then the angel took that censer, filled it with the fire of the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded. 
And there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up. And all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded. And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the spring waters. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it in the night in the same way. Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Father, we read these words and... They seem strange to us, and they are. They seem foreign to us. They seem almost unbelievable, and yet we know that everything in your word either has come to pass or the prophecies that have yet to happen will come to pass. We know that this is coming. We know that this will happen. We know that there's no stopping this. We know that this is right and just. It's perfect. It's sent from a holy God in whom there is no sin, in whom there is no wrongdoing. And yet when we see judgment on display on such a massive level, it, it's difficult to swallow. It is, it's, it's standing on holy ground. It's staring at the judgment that our sin rightly deserves. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us an understanding of your holiness today. The only reason why we have any difficulty thinking about judgment is because we are not holy enough to understand why it is good and necessary and right. So we need your help. We need your help every Sunday to see magnificent realities in your word that our fleshly eyes cannot understand. And we need your spirit to give us understanding to see the implications that are here in chapter 8. If we understand this chapter, it will change our lives today. So Holy Spirit, as we pray every Sunday, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from Revelation chapter 8. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Chapter 8 can really be divided into two main sections. First, the calm, and then the storm. First, the calm before the storm of God's judgment, and then secondly, the storm of God's judgment. So let's begin by looking in verses 1 through 6 at the calm before the storm of God's judgment. This is the calm before the storm. Verse 1, the lamb breaks the seventh seal. He slits that seventh seal. The first seal was the Antichrist being raised up and bringing false peace. The second was global war. The third was famine. The fourth was uh, a fourth of the earth dying. And you remember those four went together, and they did not happen one start-stop, then the second start-stop, then the third start-stop, then the fourth start-stop. They all happened together. When the first was open, the first stayed there. When the second was open, the second worked with the first to stay there. The third was open, working with one and two to stay there, and the fourth, so on and so forth. The fifth seal was the martyr's prayer for vengeance. The sixth seal was all of those cosmological destructions. And then the seventh seal here in chapter 8 is the answer to the fifth seal. This is the answer to the martyr's prayer. When will you avenge our blood? God says, now. You had to wait a little while until your brethren who were numbered beforehand, before all of eternity, they were established by God with an order, with a number of martyrs who were going to die. And then God's judgment comes. Now, these trumpets, 
fit into that seventh seal. That seventh seal, when Jesus opens it, it brings about the seven trumpets. And that last trumpet, the seventh trumpet, when the last angel sounds that trumpet, it brings about the bowl judgments. Seal, trump, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments. They're all funneled together. The, the word that we would use is they're telescopic. Uh, think of like an old pirate telescope, right? It's small, it's short, but it, you can kind of open it up and it has segments that fit into each other. That's what's happening here. All of the trumpet judgments fit into that, that seventh seal. All of the bowl judgments fit into the seventh trumpet, which fits into that seventh seal. So they're all together. That's why this is Daniel's 70th week, all together God's judgment on the world. So the lamb breaks this seventh seal. And when he does, John records that there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. Silence. We've seen all of heaven just loudly resounding with the praise of God over his grace, and now they stop. They cannot speak. John records that they don't speak for about half an hour. Now, some people say that there's no time in heaven, and so they would say that John is just recording based on his time in, the, in this vision. I do think that there is time in heaven because not only this, but also music, right? They're singing in heaven, and if you have singing without time, you have no singing, right? If you've ever tried to sing, but no time, just pick whatever time you want to sing in, it's going to be a terrible song. And so I, I believe that there is going to be an aspect of time in heaven. And John writes that there is a half an hour's worth of silence. Part of me really wanted to just not talk for about five minutes. Just see how uncomfortable we all got. There are people, you, you know, they're probably in small groups with you, right? That if, if the leader asks a question... And all of us leaders are fine asking the questions and just waiting until somebody responds. But there are people in small groups. If the leader asks the questions and people don't immediately respond, they just have to say something, right? Break the silence. Like, this is too awkward. Let's say something. Half an hour, nobody can speak. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 13 prophesies that this is going to happen. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord because he is aroused from his holy habitation. Uh, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Zechariah 2.13, Zephaniah 1.7. Zephaniah has it all throughout his prophecy that as judgment is about to happen, people are silent. They know it's going to happen. They know what judgment is going to come, and so they, they can't make noise. This would be like the silence right before the foreman of a jury is about to read a verdict. You've gone through the trial, you've gone through every uh, bit of evidence, and there's a, uh, a sentence going to be handed down. And as that foreman gets up to read, there's silence. We've all been in that moment where our hearts start beating faster as we think about something bad potentially happening. My, my son and I were watching... Uh, there's an animated series called The Torchlighters, and it's all about martyrs for uh, the Christian faith. And we were watching one on Jim Elliott, and he knows the story. And we were talking about what happened to Jim Elliott, and uh, just an amazing man of God. And, and so he knows what's going to happen. So towards the end of the, of the little episode, he sees these uh, people running with spears. And he turned to me, and he knows the end result, that they are going to spear Jim Elliott to death. And he said... Uh, he said, Dad, my heart's beating really fast right now. And I paused and I was able to talk with him. Why is that? I even mentioned Revelation 8. That's what, that's what Dad's going to preach on. When we know judgment is about to come, when we know something bad is about to happen, there's an aspect of us that just wants to stop and be silent. And that's what they do here. This is the calm before the storm. Verse 2 John sees these seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. This is what we would call in Greek the divine passive. They were given by God. If they don't have God as the author of these trumpets to give them to the angels, the angels don't have trumpets to sound. They were given the trumpets. That means that God is giving them the ability to be agents of judgment, not authors of it. They're not the authors of this judgment. God is. Why a trumpet? 
We had seals. That's obvious because they're wrapped around the scroll. We have trumpets. Why trumpets? Well, there's three main reasons why trumpets are used in the Old Testament. One is for celebration. One is to call and gather together people. We see that in Numbers chapter 11 where trumpets are used to gather millions of Israelites together. But there's another reason, and that's to warn people of something bad happening. This is why Nehemiah, you remember Nehemiah, he's trying to build the walls, and there are people that are trying to fight against him. And so you see in Nehemiah, he's always walking around, as he's building these walls, he's always walking around with a trumpeter next to him. Why is there a trumpeter next to him? Because he needs somebody there to sound the alarm if the bad guys show up and start doing their thing. Joel chapter 2, verse 1 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble because the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. So they have trumpets to sound the alarm of God's judgment. It is coming. It is near. It is now. Verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of that incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. So this is tabernacle temple language. You remember there were two main altars. There was the altar of sacrifice outside the temple. There was the altar of incense inside the temple. In the tabernacle, it was the same way. The tabernacle and the temple were both designed really with uh, kind of the, the paradigm and the picture of what heaven looks like and what the Garden of Eden looked like. In Exodus chapter 27, you have the description of the dimensions of the altar of sacrifice. In Exodus chapter 30, you have the description and dimensions of the altar of incense. And the idea was you would go, you would sacrifice uh, an animal, you would bleed it out, And that was the only way that you could enter into the presence of God. So you kill an animal, you put its body on that sacrificial altar, and you burn it up before the Lord. And then you take one of those coals that was used to burn this animal up, and you take the coal and you take it with a a censer or a tong, or uh, your translations might say different things in in verse 3, but you take that coal and you bring it into the temple, and you put it on that altar of incense, and you let that incense uh, be like the prayers of the saints going up before the Lord. So you see the picture here. Before you enter in to pray to God, before you have any access to talk to God, you need to go through a sacrifice. The sacrifice is the first, and then you bring a coal from the sacrifice into the temple to offer it on the altar of incense. This is what Zechariah was doing. You remember when the angel showed up and talked to him about John the Baptist being born in Luke chapter 1. This is what Zechariah was doing. He had taken that coal, he had brought it in, he was offering incense before the Lord. Our prayers have to go through a, a guilt offering, a sin offering. And in the Old Testament, they had to go through that fire of the sin offering. That was the only way. In fact, Nadab and Abihu, you remember them in Leviticus chapter 10, they, uh, the Bible explicitly says they brought fire from their homes. They didn't go through the, the altar of sacrifice. They decided, we don't need that. We can bring fire from home. And you remember what happened to them. God brought his fire that day and burned their strange fire and killed them. So it's all that picture here. There's an altar. The sacrifice has already been made. The lamb has been slain, but he is standing. He is alive And the altar of incense is the prayers of all the saints. The angel takes the coal from the the incense, the the coal that's going to burn that incense, bring it over to the the golden altar, and let the smoke, verse 4, of the incense with all the prayers of the saints go up before God. What's the substance of these prayers? You remember in chapter 6, we looked at the fifth seal, The martyrs are praying, when will you avenge us? When will you avenge our blood? I think that this includes their prayers, most definitely. Maybe it also includes all of our prayers as well. Their prayers for God's justice, for God's kingdom to come. And God hears their cry. God hears their cry. There's such a a beautiful picture, even from the Exodus that we see. You remember when God spoke to Moses, he said, I have heard the groanings of my people. I've heard their cries, and I'm going to act. I've heard their cries, and I'm going to act. That's what's happening here. I've heard their cries, and now I'm going to act. Remember in the Exodus, there's going to be judgment, and then there's going to be deliverance. The exact same thing's going to happen here. There's judgment, and then deliverance. 
So he takes the fire from the altar. He offers it as incense before the Lord. And then, verse 5, the angel takes that censer again, the tongs again, that little uh, metal bag or metal square again, and pulls the, the coal out. He fills it with the fire of the altar, and he throws it down onto the earth. God has heard the cries of his people, and he is going to act in judgment. And this is the picture of that judgment happening. Notice what John sees. He sees and he hears peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, an earthquake. And I love how he just says, sounds. Like he can't even describe what the sounds are. He just says this, now the decibel reader is back to infinity, right? We've gone from silence for half an hour over the the reality of God's judgment about to unfold to now judgment's happening. And there is just a deafening sound. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Just picture the scene in your mind. They were given these trumpets by God. They've been holding these trumpets. They've been waiting for God to give them the okay, the go-ahead. And as that one angel takes the prayers of the people, offers them before the Lord, and then says God has heard their cry, and his answer is to take that and throw it onto the earth in a picture of the judgment that's going to unfold. The angels with those trumpets say, now it's time to, to sound the trumpets, and they stand ready. We see a calm before the storm of God's judgment. Secondly, now we see the storm of God's judgment. So number one, we see the calm before the storm, and now we see the actual storm itself. We're going to look at these four trumpets because they go together, just like the first four seals. You remember the four seals went together, and then the three were a little bit different at the end, uh, seal five, six, and seven. Same thing happens here with the trumpets. There's four trumpets that go together. That's why they're just rapid fire. They have the same theme. They're, they're targeting nature uh, more than they are targeting explicitly and specifically humans. They're targeting nature, though humans are greatly affected by them. So let's look at these trumpets. Verse 7, the first trumpet. It's hail and fire mixed with blood. So this is either a hailstorm that's destroying the earth. Uh, some people say it's a volcano that's throwing up lava and, and rocks that's destroying the earth. I don't see any reason why we can't take it literally. Because remember Exodus chapter 9, verses 18 through 26, there was a literal hail and fire that God rains down in judgment against the Egyptians. So it could be the exact same thing here. There's literal hail and fire. Maybe the blood is mixed in with that, or maybe that's a picture of the blood that's going to come from the judgment. John says that a third of the earth is burned up. A third of the trees were burned up. And all of the green grass is burned up. I think it's very interesting that John says all of the green grass. Because in chapter 9, verse 4, we're going to read that the locusts that come up out of the abyss are told not to eat the grass. So there has to be grass for them to eat. So this can't be all of the grass, period. So John specifies it's all of the green grass. So maybe there's brown dormant grass that's waiting to grow. And God destroys the green grass and then the brown dormant grass can grow. Maybe it's that God destroys all of the grass totally, and then it starts to regrow again. I don't know, but I love how there's a specific description because some might say, well, there's contradiction. All the grass is destroyed, and then there's locusts that are told not to eat the grass. Is there grass? How could there be grass? Well, I think it's the definition here. All the green grass is destroyed. Here's what we do know. When this trumpet sounds, one-third of the vegetation of the earth will burn up. The effect on the food supply and the resources of the earth will be staggering. There must also be a considerable loss of life as a result of what's taking place. Second trumpet, verse 8 and 9. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. So what's happening here? This is either, two main interpretations are, it's either a meteor that's being thrown to the earth that hits the sea and, and destroys everything we see, or it's a volcano that's coming up out of the earth, and it's a, it's a figurement of what God's going to do by sending and allowing that volcano to happen. Again, I don't see any reason why it's not a meteor being thrown out of uh, the skies, this great mountain of a meteor burning with fire being thrown into the sea. A third of the sea becomes blood. Now, either uh, literal blood, which again, in Exodus, we see the water becoming blood. So I don't have any problem with that. 
Maybe this is more of a reference to the death that's taking place in the waters. Maybe it's a reference to a phenomenon that happens even to this day in the ocean where if there's a disease or a certain species dies in a specific part of the water, the water turns red. It has this red tint to it. Might be what John has in mind. We don't know. We also don't know exactly where this happens because John uses the definite article for sea, the sea, a very specific sea, which in his mind is probably the Mediterranean Sea. So probably this is happening in the Mediterranean Sea, but its effects flow to everybody else. Again, though there are questions in this trumpet, what we do know is that the sounding of this trumpet causes a third of the sea to be turned into blood, and consequently one-third of the sea creatures die, and one-third of the ships are destroyed. The third trumpet, verses 10 through 11. The angel sounded, and a a great star fell from heaven. Some people want to see that star as an angel or a fallen angel. I don't think that it has to be. I think it's, again, probably a meteor or something like that. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the spring waters. And the name of the star, this is why people would say it's an angel. The name of the fallen angel is Wormwood. It doesn't have to be because that word just means bitter or something that's death-giving. Wormwood is the Greek word where we get absinthe from. It causes you to uh, get drunk, pass out, have visions, and die. So this is a bitterness that's going to attack all of the waters, a third of the waters on the spring waters. Again, we, we don't know exactly precisely what's happening here, but we do know that the third trumpet brings great destruction on the fresh waters of the earth. One third of these waters are contaminated in some way, which again will be disastrous to life on the planet. This is just nature folding in on itself. Everything good about nature that gives us blessing is being taken away. Fourth trumpet, verse 12. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. This is prophesied all over the Bible. Again, if you understand your Old Testament, you're going to get to this and say, exactly, that's what the Bible has always been referring to. Uh, Amos chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10, Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 7, Joel 2 and 3 talks about great cosmological disturbances and darkness covering the land. Maybe it's because of the ash of the volcanoes and the ash of the meteors and the ash of everything that's going up. Maybe it's because of that, or maybe it's the exact same thing as the Exodus, where God just kind of turns the light off in the world. Luke chapter 21, verse 25, Jesus speaks of this. Jesus speaks of the third and fourth trumpets in Luke 21, and 20, Luke 21, verse 25. He does the same thing in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 13, verse 24, speaking of the sun, moon, and the stars being darkened. It's an act of judgment. Darkness has always been a picture of an act of judgment, of God drawing near in judgment. We see that even at the cross. You remember uh, Jesus on the cross um, right at noon when it's supposed to be the brightest in the day. It goes dark. It goes pitch black, and as it does, God the Father visits his wrath upon the Son. Now, all of this is happening in staggering ways on creation. The fourth trumpet brings judgment on the sun, the moon, and the stars. One-third of each is darkened, which will cause unbelievable disaster to the world. How the darkening actually takes place isn't clear, but there's no doubt about the end result. So while there are still question marks in all of our minds, we know the end result. Now, here's my question. Why are these four trumpets targeting nature? It seems like God's angry at creation that he made. You remember in Romans chapter 8, the creation groans with us. Why? Creation hasn't voluntarily sinned, right? Trees don't commit acts of treason against God, even though tree is in the word treason. They don't actually sin against God. It's not voluntarily done, but sin has been placed into them. All of the world has fallen. It has the effects of sin inside of it such that for God to reclaim the earth, he needs to purge the earth of all of its sin. Nature, uh, Romans chapter 8 tells us, is under bondage to sin. 
Not willingly, the Bible says. It didn't do anything to deserve that. But since God is holding, since Jesus is holding in his hand the title deed to the earth, for him to reclaim the earth as his own possession, he needs to purge it of all of its sin. And that's what's happening here. These first four trumpets are just a picture of the purging of the earth of sin. That's what's happening with these trumpets. Visibly vindicating the martyrs, visibly vindicating those who willingly gave their lives for Christ. Chapter 8 ends in verse 13 with John seeing and hearing an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Whoa, 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 or cursed, cursed, cursed to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. That word eagle, some people translate it as angel. That's not the best translation that comes from a later manuscript. Uh, It could also be translated as the word vulture. It's a bird of prey. I I don't see any reason why it it doesn't have to be just a bird. Uh, Some people see it needing to be an angel. It could be. Maybe it's one of the cherubim that looks like the eagle. Maybe. It could also just be a talking eagle. Uh, We're going to see even crazier things than a talking eagle in Revelation, so I'm okay with that. We've also seen talking animals in the Bible before Revelation, so we're okay. But again, despite whatever it might be, which is a question mark in our minds, We know exactly what it's doing, and it's telling the world, those who dwell on the earth, he uses that phrase, those who dwell on the earth, that judgment is going to get even worse. Whoa, 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 cursed, 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 and it's a reference to the next three trumpet blasts that are about to sound. The first four blasts are nothing compared to the next three. The first four deal with nature with effects to humanity. The next three are going to deal specifically with humans. And so this this eagle, this bird of prey says, uh, you are cursed if you are going to experience this, if you're going to go through this. You're cursed. Now, you've come to church this morning. You want to be encouraged by the word of God. And you hear four different trumpets blasting in your face, wondering, what's the point of that? How am I supposed to be encouraged? Where's the hope in that? What's the point? I want to end our time together this morning by giving you five staggering truths from this chapter. Five amazing realities and implications from Revelation chapter 8. Both the storm, the, the calm before the storm, and the storm of God's judgment itself. Let's look specifically at these judgments. So staggering reality number one, these judgments originate with God. These judgments are authored by God. These are God's judgments. God rules over the world. He is king even when, especially when, it doesn't look or feel like he's king. He's on his throne. All of these crazy things are going on, and they originate from him. He holds the scroll in his hand, and he's waiting to open its seals. And when he starts opening its seals, he is the author of everything that's happening. He's the one that's making these judgments happen. Remember that divine passive. The trumpets were given by God to the angels. They could do nothing apart from God doing the work in and through them. In Revelation, we tend to get so preoccupied with the what and the how and the when that we lose sight of what's most important, which is the who and the why. The who is God. God's the one who's doing all this. And the why is because sin deserves and demands punishment, even sin that's bound up in creation. God has real enemies. Unbelievers hate God's holiness. They're determined in their disbelief. They will not bow the knee to their king. Sometimes I I just wonder if we tend to feel we're more compassionate than God is. We read judgment like this, we read punishment like this, and we think, you know what, God's being a little bit harsh. Soften up a little bit, God. I think that that takes away from God's holiness, but it also takes away from our hope. Divine judgment is a massive hope as we see evil in the world. Right? They're just... Uh, Just any week, just any given week, read a news article on something happening in our city, in our county, in the San Fernando Valley. There is such evil in the world. And God says, I will rid the world of evil. I will. 
very interesting, John chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Jesus says, not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all the judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you that he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Judgment is hanging over all of our heads. John chapter 3 tells us that we are currently under the judgment of God, that the judgment of God, the wrath of God, abides on us. It dwells on us. This is why Jonathan Edwards, in his very famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, said that we are like a, a spider dangling over the fires of hell with just a thread holding us. If just the right amount of heat or wind or something causes that thread to break, we are doomed. The who of this judgment is God. The why is because judgment is an expression of God's victory over sin and evil, and it's a profound expression of the triumph of Jesus Christ. Evil will not win. That's what Revelation is all about. Evil will not win. Jesus wins. And that should bring great encouragement and comfort to you and to me. These insane cosmological activities are not outside of the the hands of God. They originate from God. They're authored by God. And they're given to this world for our hope as the evil in this world is removed. Implication number two. Number one, these judgments originate with God. Number two, these judgments are a result of prayer. These judgments are a result of prayer. This is what began the chapter. The prayers of the saints make these judgments happen. It may seem like our prayers are never being answered. It might seem like you keep praying the exact same prayer and God's not listening or God's not acting or God's not hearing. But this passage assures us that God hears our prayers and answers. He listens and he responds. When we pray, your kingdom come, we're praying for this to take place. We're asking God, bring evil out of this world, destroy it, and bring hope, bring peace, bring righteousness. Psalm 141 verse 2 says, May my prayer be counted as incense before you. Just like the incense on that altar that is a beautiful representation of prayers ascending to God. Let my prayers do that. Let my prayers be a part of that. So can I ask you a question this morning about your prayer life? What are you asking God to do that only God can do so that when he does it, he gets the glory for it? What are you asking God to do that only God can do so that when he does it, he gets the glory for it? Or are you asking God to do things that you're going to do eventually? You're going to make it happen. These judgments originate with God. These judgments are a result of prayer being answered. Number three, third implication, these judgments expose the nature of people. These judgments expose the nature of people. That eagle that's flying over the earth in mid-heaven so that everyone can see is saying, woe to those who are dwelling in the earth, who are earth dwellers, the inhabitants of the earth. Why? Why are they the ones who are targeted? Because they are the ones who love the world more than they love Christ. Turn to 1 John. You know this passage in 1 John chapter 2, but it's a reminder to us today. I believe that one of the main implications of chapter 8 for us today is that we need to stop loving the world because those who love the world, its worldly, evil, wicked, sinful system, those are the ones that are represented here in John chapter 8, or in Revelation chapter 8 that John sees. Those are the ones who are going to receive these judgments. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 John writes, do not love the world. Again, this isn't don't love non-believers. We need to. We need to be in the world with them. That's why God left us here, so that we would share and we would love and we'd tell them about Jesus. What John is referring to here is the worldly system of, of evil, of sin. Don't love those things, the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Therefore, you cannot love God and love this worldly evil system at the same time. You can't do that. 
John writes, verse 17, the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Notice how love for God produces doing, acting, living for God. If you were to ask John, okay, you wrote 1 John and then you wrote Revelation, where are there similarities in what you're writing? And I think he would take us to Revelation chapter 8 and 1 John chapter 2 and he would say, you do not want to be dwelling on the earth in that time and that's a picture of people that are currently right now love the world more than they love God. One chapter over in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, John writes, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. What amazing love that we would be called children of God, and such we are. It's for this reason that the world doesn't know us. Because it doesn't know God. The worldly system doesn't know. That's the word knowledge or know is that word for intimate acquaintance, that, that love and that intimacy with God. It doesn't love or have an intimate fellowship with God. It hates him. And so the world doesn't know us. So can I ask you, in your heart of hearts, as you examine your heart, do you love this world and the things of this world, or do you love Christ? Do you long to be freed from this world to be in the world that is yet to come because that's your home. What is your greatest love? These judgments expose the nature of people. Number four, reality number four, is these judgments anticipate the final deliverance of God's people. These judgments anticipate a final deliverance of God's people. They originate with God. They begin with these prayers of the saints. They're answers to the prayers of the saints. They expose the nature of people. And they anticipate the final deliverance of God's people. Again, this is all similar to the, the Exodus. Even some of the judgments that are being thrown on the earth in Revelation look identical to the ones that are happening in the Exodus. God will not let sin go unpunished. We know that. So my question is, how, when will God deliver us as we are a part of a sinful worldly system, as we ourselves are sinners. Why isn't God just acting now? Why is he waiting? Why aren't these things taking place now? Why not just deliver us? Why not just take us home now? The answer is because he's eager to not judge sin. He's eager to not judge sin. He doesn't want to do that. He wants to wait He's compassionate and long-suffering. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promises. It's going to happen, but he's patient. He does not desire any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So as we say, Father, deliver us from this world, if God were to say yes in this moment now, that means non-believers have no more chance. That means... The end is here, and it happens, and non-believers have no more chance. This is what his return brings. This is why he's waiting to return. We say, okay, God, how much longer do we have to wait? The reason why he's waiting is because he's waiting for people to repent, and they will repent only when they hear that Jesus is better than sin, that Jesus saves them from sin. He won't let sin go unpunished, but he's also not eager to judge it. There's a time when God will let the clock run out. But in the meantime, he is patient. He is waiting. He is pleading. He's desiring all to come to repentance. I just think of two implications with the patience of God in waiting to deliver us. Implication number one for all of you parents, do you represent the Father? We talked about this in our men's ministry yesterday. Do you represent the Father to your children by being a patient dad, not wanting to have to discipline. Waiting, being patient. And maybe the application today is go ask your kids. Go ask your kids. Do you feel like mom or dad, do you feel like we're patient with you? Do you feel like we, we care about you, we love you? Or do you feel like we're quick to get angry, to get mad? Do we snap at you? Do we lose it with you? These are some of the most humbling moments as a parent, right? My, my youngest son, bless his sweetheart, it was his birthday on Friday. 
And uh, he was just bouncing off the walls, so excited, and he knocked over uh, this Bluetooth speaker that I have, and it's a nice speaker, and it fell from the piano down to the ground. I didn't see it. I heard it. It was so loud. And uh, I hadn't had to talk to him because he was disobeying in a couple different ways. I just hugged him. He was crying. He, he was afraid to come talk to me. I hugged him. I kissed him. I said, I love you. I said, even if it's broken, I love you, right? If it's broken, you're going to have to pay for it, which is going to take him probably the next 30 years of his life. But, <laughs> but I said, do I, do I love you more than I love the, the speaker? So then I took my two older kids out to run errands with me. And I said, hey, guys, how did I do with Tyler? Because I was really frustrated in here. <laughs> Could you see it? Was I patient? And my daughter said, oh, yeah, Dad, you were amazing. Like, oh, I don't know if I believe it, but <laughs> talk to your kids. Ask your kids, how am I doing? Do you feel like I'm patient because God's patient with me, and I want to be patient with you? A second implication is, uh, with, with regard to judgments anticipating final deliverance, God's waiting, so he's patient. But also, I was thinking about this this week. When we choose not to forgive somebody, when we harbor bitterness in our hearts and we choose not to forgive, we say, I don't know if I can forgive that person. We're still angry in our heart. When we choose that, what we're saying is, I hope this happens to them. That's what we're saying, right? When I say, I can't forgive you, then you're saying, I hope what happens in Revelation 8 happens to them. Now, I know that you all have experienced things in your life that are just, I mean, they're impossible to forgive in your own fleshly heart. But I just want to encourage all of us, a lack of forgiveness, harboring bitterness in our souls, is us, in effect, saying, I hope that revelation happens to that person. It's not our God. He's promised to deliver us. You know, a third implication from this section, from this fourth point, is that though judgment is coming, though the world's going to get worse and bad things are definitely going to happen, we have hope. We have hope. We see these things as a precursor to deliverance. So again, a question I have for your own heart is, how hopeful are you for the future? Do you fear the future? That's another way we could ask this. Do you fear the future. And I'm not talking about Revelation 8 kind of future. I'm talking about tomorrow future. I'm talking about next year future. You will fear the future if you don't see the providence of God in the past. If you don't see God's hand working for your good in the past, you are going to fear the future. If you doubt God's providence, direction, and goodness in the past, you're going to fear the future. If you can't see that all of the events in your past, the good, yes, but even more the bad, were an allowance of God working for your greatest good, your greatest joy, and his greatest glory, then there you have a huge reason to fear the future. If you look back on your past and you think God messed up, he gave me something that he shouldn't have given me, then you're going to have problems trusting him in the future. If you don't think he was fair, this is one of the biggest reasons why we don't trust God. We look into our past and we say, you weren't fair with me there. And if you weren't fair with me there, then you're not fair. And how can I fully trust an unfair God? Or maybe I didn't get what I wanted. You didn't give me what I wanted. You didn't give me the gift I was asking for. This is all a question about God's character. And if you question God's character, you're going to have a hard time trusting him. So are you hopeful about the future? Do you look back into your past and you see God wasn't fair, God mistreated me, God gave me something that I didn't deserve, do you see that? Because if you see that, I guarantee you you're going to struggle to trust him in the future. But if you understand that God has only ever been kind and gentle to you, even in the harshest of circumstances, he has just been kind and gentle, wooing you to himself. If you see that in the past, then come what may in the future, we have amazing hope. Finally, number five, the last staggering reality, uh, implication from Revelation 8. These originate with God. These judgments originate with God. They're an answer to prayer. God, in his grace, is answering prayer. They expose, these judgments expose the nature of people. They anticipate the final deliverance of God's people. And fifthly and finally, because of Jesus, because of Christ, we 
do not need to fear these judgments. Apart from Christ, this is what you have in store. And it gets even worse because this is only what's taking place physically on the earth. And then your soul and your glorified body will go into hell for all of eternity. If you don't love Christ, not just mental assent to the facts about Jesus, but you don't treasure him, you don't cherish him, you don't love him, then you have these judgments and more in store. But if you love Christ, and you have seen, as we sang earlier this morning, my sin, if this isn't bliss to your hearts, then something's wrong. Because your sin not in part, my sin not in part, but the entirety of it. I come to God, 1 John chapter 2, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you of that sin, and then he cleanses you of all of your unrighteousness. You say, I'm sorry for X, Y, and Z, and he says, I'll take care of A through Z, everything. My sin not in part, but the whole was nailed to the cross, and therefore I what? I bear it no more. And the refrain, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I cannot not praise God because he took these judgments on himself in the person and work of Christ on the cross so that I don't have to fear these judgments. There is nothing for me to fear. I have no punishment to fear. I have no judgment to fear. I can walk through life unafraid of judgment. And even more than that, I can walk through life knowing that God the Father smiles at what I do. He says over me through the work of his son, this is my beloved son. Patrick Carmichael is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. How in the world is that possible? It's impossible, apart from the gospel. That God in his love would say, I will take Patrick's sin upon myself. I will crush my son so that he can go free. And then, with Christ, I will freely give Patrick all things. Because of Jesus, we need not fear these judgments. Father, we thank you for Revelation chapter 8 that is so powerful, it is so intense, it is so full of judgment and yet hope. It is so filled with demonstration of your holiness and the wrath that is to come, but also of the salvation that we have in Christ because he took all of our punishment, all of our judgment in himself at the cross. And so we say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul, for who he is and for what he's done. May we respond even now as we sing in gratitude for the Savior who made it possible for us to live unafraid of judgment, unafraid of future wrath, fearless in this world, and with the full favor of God himself upon us. Pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Please stand with us as we worship together through song.